This morning I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2. Once again, we have moved away from our verse-by-verse study of Matthew for yet another week. We will come back to it next week, but I wanted to do a second message that tied in with the one I did a few weeks ago on the seven ruling convictions of a pastor's heart. Again, we've got a number of new people, many people listening to us in various places, and I thought it was important to maybe continue a few of those concepts. And this morning I want to speak to you about three stages of spiritual development. It's important for us to understand what goes on in a church or what should go on in a church and why. And certainly for you to better understand why the leadership of this church will do many of the things that they choose to do. And so this morning... I want to clarify these three categories, frankly, of believers that we find in the body of Christ. Three different categories of people within the church. Last week, or the last time I was with you, again, I spoke on the seven ruling convictions of a pastor's heart, clarifying the biblical expectations of the role and the purpose of a pastor and therefore the direction of the, of the church in general, but now I want to look at these three stages of spiritual development representing really three different categories of believers in the body of Christ, which in turn require three very unique considerations, if you will, in ministry. And again, I would remind you that a very simple definition of ministry is basically the never-ending battle to proclaim and protect the truth and then to live it out for God's glory and for our good. And certainly, as your pastor, I have a deep and passionate concern for your spiritual growth and for your development. Even as a father and a grandfather... I'm very concerned about the growth of my children, their intellectual growth, their physical growth, their, uh, their, their spiritual growth, and so on. And all of you would understand that. But likewise, here at the church. And the New Testament is filled with many passages addressing these issues, but I've chosen this one because it has some very distinct characteristics that I think all of you will readily identify with. First of all, let me give you just a brief background on First John, uh, to, to get kind of the historical and theological themes that are there, it's really about the fundamentals of the faith. He talks much about, shall we say, the, the, the non-negotiables of the faith, those things that, that really give a litmus test to true, genuine Christianity. He speaks much about those things that really validate true saving faith so that you don't get hung up on all the phony stuff out there. A lot of people think that you're a Christian if you belong to a church, or you're a Christian if you do certain religious things. But he gets into the nitty-gritty of what it really means to be a Christian. He speaks much uh, in a very confrontive way against false doctrine. There is a zero tolerance for false doctrine and for false teachers. He's very black and white. And by the way, the dominant heresy in this day was basically 
one that said that the incarnation really didn't happen. The denial of the incarnation of Christ. And, and by the way, this was probably uh, the beginning of, of the, the ancient pagan philosophy of Gnosticism. But as we look at 1 John, we see him speaking about the dominant characteristics of false teachers. For example, in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, he will speak about how that they really don't love the flock. They're always trying to push their own agenda. They are deceptive. They scatter the sheep. They will abandon the sheep. They will actually do violence to, to the sheep. They are like Cain who hated Abel, and they will despise righteousness. They will be filled with, literally, he says, with hatred towards other Christians, even though many times they are the pastor. Can you imagine that? And uh, in, in verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so that's much of the theme of 1 John, but there's also a secondary theme. What I just mentioned was much more the primary themes. But the secondary theme is basically a pastor who has a passion for his people to, to be happy, to be holy, and to have assurance of their faith. So we see much of a, a pastor's concern here. He's, he's like a, a loving father who is passionate and yet forthright. It's almost like he's having a forthright conversation with a son or a daughter, like a father would do. For example, in chapter 1 and verse 4, he speaks of his concern for their happiness. He says, and these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. But he's also concerned about their holiness. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But he's also concerned about the assurance of their salvation. In chapter 5 and verse 13, he says these things. I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, it's fascinating as we read 1 John, we see that John develops these themes, these various themes, by repeating them over and over. And he uses somewhat of a, a, a spiral, if you will, an ever-widening spiral where he continues to expand our understanding of some of these basic themes by repeating them and saying them in different ways. So, with this in mind, what we have here is a loving shepherd who is now going to emphasize three different groups of believers to which he is writing. And by the way, each of you will find yourself in one of these three groups, and you'll find yourself in kind of a continuum of any of them. And this is described in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And let me give you the three groups, what he will use in terms of his terminology. They will be children, young men, and fathers. Now, don't think of this as literal children and literal just young men and literal fathers, but all that that entails, as you will see. Beginning in verse 12, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And then he goes on in verse 13 and he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. 
I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, you must understand what we are about to look at has nothing to do with how long you've been been a Christian. But dear friends, and I want you to hear me loud and clear. What you're going to see is this has everything to do with your grasp, your intellectual understanding of divine truth and your disciplined application of it. All through Scripture, we're going to see that understanding plus obedience equals maturity. And if you have a deficiency in your understanding and certainly sin in your life, you will never reach maturity. One that has a shallow grasp of Scripture, people that have very little understanding of the great themes of of theology, who have a limited understanding, therefore, of who God is and and, and how he would have us live for our good and his glory, will will never reach a level of maturity that they, they could if they understood these things and lived them out more fully. Folks, there's no shortcut to spiritual maturity. There's no such thing as a second blessing where all of a sudden you're zapped with something and now you've been elevated to a new level of maturity, as you will see later. But only a disciplined, determined, intellectual pursuit of Bible knowledge combined with a disciplined, determined commitment to live consistently with what you have learned will ever produce maturity. There's no spiritual, as I say, diet pill where all of a sudden you can take a pill like they offer. There's a seem like there's a pill for everything these days that will somehow cause you to what? Just eat or lose weight. I mean, we we know, for example, when it comes to that, it's a real simple thing. You eat less and exercise more. Now, people say that in a thousand different ways and make millions of dollars out of it and give you pills to give you shortcuts. But bottom line, you've got to eat less and exercise more. The same type of thing is true when it comes to spiritual maturity. Now, I have divided these three stages of spiritual development. Obviously, he has divided them as children, young men, and fathers. I'm going to add a word before each one of these categories to help you grasp them perhaps a bit better. We're going to look at, first of all, dependent children. Secondly, discerning young men. And thirdly, devoted fathers. Now, first, we have to understand this concept of children. Notice in verse 12, he says, I am writing to you, little children. It's interesting in the original language, the word children here is technia, comes from the word technia. And it it was really an affectionate term for a small child of any age. Uh, it, It was therefore a reference to all believers, all who would be a child of God. And in this case, the offspring of John, who was their spiritual father in terms of, of, of the pastor who, had, who undoubtedly had led many of them to a saving knowledge of Christ. So here in this verse, first verse here, John is writing to the church as a whole. And he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So in other words, he's writing to the children of God here, the, the part of the body of Christ and Certainly, the reason why he can write to them is because their sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Real simple. 
And we all know as believers that because of sin, man's greatest need is to be regenerated and reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we see in verse 13 is a very different term. And here's where the plot thickens, as they would say. He says, I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. You see it there in verse 13, the end of the verse. Now, it's interesting, he changes the word children here from technia to a term that is paideia. We get our word pedagogy from that term. And here, he's emphasizing now a child under pedagogy. He's writing to believers who still need instruction, those that are ignorant, shall we say. And by the way, don't hear that as a bad term unless you enjoy being ignorant. I am very ignorant about many things. We all are. But when it comes to the Word of God and the spiritual, the important things, we're not to be ignorant of those things, right? We see that throughout Scripture. So he's writing here, to these children that are ignorant, that are uneducated, those that are are in need of training. Now, again, here he's using a term that's not speaking about spiritual offspring, but rather people who are childish in their faith, who are immature, who are undeveloped, who are, as we might say, juvenile. And this is where we begin to see these Stages of development. So first of all, let's look at those that are, shall we say, dependent children. There at the end of verse 13, I have written to you children, paideia, because you know the Father. Now notice here the defining characteristic of this kind of believer who is immature, undeveloped, and childish is they know the Father. Now this is a precious thought. Don't think that there's something wrong with this. Here we see that these people... Know the one who has drawn them to himself. They know the father, the one who summoned them by his grace and his mercy. And as a result of that, they can cry out, Abba, Father, as the Hebrew children would say. They would uh, some of their first words, just like ours would be Mama and Dada. They would say Abba and Ima. This is the idea here. And we see this in our children. Our children recognize their parents. They recognize mama. They recognize daddy. They love their parents. They're utterly dependent upon them. And likewise, they love, in the spiritual sense, their heavenly father. But also, when you think of one, of of an immature child here, as the term refers to, we see some other characteristics. And just think of a, for example, a brand new Christian. And I know some of you are there. You're new Christians. Think of this now. If you think of the analogy here of of this type of a child, children are naive. They are easily manipulated. They are undiscerning. They are vulnerable. They're imaginative. They're curious. They're impetuous. They're impatient. And they're ignorant. We all know that about children. Many times they're ruled by emotions, not by a well-informed mind and a well-informed conscience. And in many cases, they don't think real deeply about things unless they're challenged to do so. Children are highly dependent upon their parents. 
But many times they want to be independent. No, daddy, me do it. You know, that type of thing. So they need supervision. And as children, many times they, I shouldn't say many times, they will always lack self-discipline. And they have a very short attention span and on and on it goes. Now, folks, that is okay in the physical world when you're five years old. But if what I just described somehow characterizes a person that's 25 years old, we got a big problem. And unfortunately, in the spiritual world, many times that's what happens. The majority of the evangelical church is right here. You know, it's okay to be naive and ignorant about many things and undeveloped and even immature in many ways if you're a new Christian. But if you've known the Lord for years and you're still there, we've got a big problem. So many times these people, you might say, will have a Christian life that is defined more by dependent trust than discerning wisdom. This is the point here. And it's sad when you think about it. There are whole movements today designed to attract people at this level and keep them there. Think of all the spiritual parallels here. People that are spiritually naive and easily manipulated like a child. They're undiscerning. They're vulnerable. By the way, the remedy for this is... And there's several, but it always has to do with the word of God. But we read, for example, in Ephesians 4 and verse 12, that um, that God has given pastor teachers. He has given us, it says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity, the idea of doctrinal unity, the unity of the faith. And listen to this and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man. And later on in verse 14, it says, as a result, in other words, as a result of understanding doctrinal truth and having, therefore, the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, we are no longer to be what? We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You see, spiritually dependent, immature Christians like children, they need to be equipped. And many times they don't really have the discernment to know that which they need to learn. They don't really know what needs to be taught to them. And many times what happens is they end up in churches where they're entertained rather than edified. And after a while... They begin to think, well, I guess this is what Christianity is all about. I've, I often ask myself why Christians, why so many Christians are as happy as a hog and slop with superficial books and, and sermons and, and seminars and musical lyrics and all of this type of thing. Things that are just as shallow as water on a plate. And they're just loving it. They're just eating it up. And I began to understand that it's because so many people are right at this particular level of spiritual maturity. They know the Father. They love the Father. But that's kind of where they're stuck. And because of their naivety, 
you will see them writing and singing very superficial, very basic, very one-dimensional praise choruses and, and even sermonettes and books and all of those types of things. Because like a child, they're, they're comfortable with simplicity. That's all they know. And again, that's okay as a new Christian, but not somebody who has known the Lord for a number of years and needs to be growing into immaturity. These people, for example, will be very uncomfortable with hymns, hymns that are rich in doctrine, where every word and every phrase is, is packed with, with concentrated truth that, that is rich in understanding. And like children, many times, Immature Christians will be ruled by emotion far more than a reasoned intellect. And so they will sing about their love for the Father, which is, which is good. And sometimes I notice, you know, you'll see the hands lifted up and all of the emotion. And it, it, I almost get this image of, of, you know, Daddy, pick me up. Like my grandchildren will do. They come to me and, Papa, Papa, they want me to pick them up. And again, there's a place for that. I hope you understand. But when you never grow out of that, and when that's your steady diet, where all you do is exclusively celebrate your attachment to the Father, and you're one-dimensional, and that is your focus, and you never really grow up, there's a problem. And unfortunately, many times when people do be begin to grow, others kind of resent them because their tastes begin to change. And I'm not saying, don't hear this, that praise choruses and some things that are more simplistic are only for the immature and we shouldn't have anything. I love a lot of those and I think many people do. But the point is, you can't just stay there, you know, and that's your sole diet. But when people do begin to grow, the simple praise songs, for example, will not remotely be able to express what is in their heart and mind. Friends, think of it. There's a big difference between Jesus loves me and a mighty fortress is our God. There, there is a big difference between what? In the garden and holy, holy, holy. There is a big difference between awesome God, that chorus, and be thou my vision. Big difference. But dependent, immature Christians will never understand these differences unless they're taught by those who have an advanced knowledge and understanding of the glorious truths of the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, we read that, that, that through equipping and through knowledge, we are to grow up in all aspects into Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 2, that we're to long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. And in 2 Peter 3, 18, he, he was talking about how we need to guard ourselves against false teachers. And he says, but we're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's sad, isn't it, when you have this whole seeker-sensitive movement today, this whole purpose-driven mindset that literally hires marketing firms to discover what non-Christians and dependent Christians, childish Christians, want for their spiritual development. Now, folks, to me, that is tantamount to going to a kindergartner or a first grader and saying, we would like for you to develop your educational curriculum for the rest of your life. Boy, that's, that's not very smart. 
I mean, I know what that would be, video games, uh, comic books, uh, field trips. I mean, you're not going to hear grammar, uh, Latin, science, math. You're not going to hear those things. You've got to have someone that's older and wiser to say, child, here's what you need to learn. And here's what I'm going to require of you because I want you to grow into maturity. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't have to go, and I love this, I don't have to go to some church growth guru or some marketing firm to understand what I'm supposed to tell you because God has already told me. He's told me as a pastor I'm to preach the word when it's popular and when it's not. Just preach the word. Just unleash truth on people. He says that I, that I, I am to, what, to equip people with the knowledge of the Son of God in Ephesians 4. He tells me that, that, that I am to contend earnestly for the faith. I'm to preach the whole counsel of God. You know, we don't just preach a couple of things like evangelism every time we get together. You know, whatever the text is, that's what you're going to hear. But if I don't do that, and if we as pastors don't do that, and if we as parents don't do that, and if we as Sunday school teachers don't do that, we're going to stifle everybody's growth. And we leave people, therefore, vulnerable to error, and we rob them of the immense joys of knowing the deep things of God. You see... God understands, yes, I have got immature new Christians. And like all children, they will be imaginative. They're going to be curious. They're going to be impetuous. They're even going to be impatient. And they're certainly going to be ignorant. Many times they're going to be ruled by their emotions. And they're not going to have a well-informed conscience. And they don't like to even be challenged to think deeply sometimes. And, yeah, they'll lack self-discipline and maybe have a short attention span, but I'm going to take care of all of that. I have given them my Holy Spirit, the resident truth teacher. You just give them the word and let me take care of that. You just give them the word and they'll grow. And we all know that. Jesus prayed in John 16, 13. I should say he said in 16, 13 that the Holy Spirit will, what? Guide you into all truth. And in John 17, he prayed to the Father, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Set them apart to be holy so that they can be blessed and you can be glorified through the truth. Your word is truth. Friends, I've seen this over and over again. If I can put it this way. The systematic, verse-by-verse teaching of the Word of God, in whichever form it comes in. Sometimes it'll come through preaching, through your Sunday school, through your own uh, 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 study at home, through tapes, whatever it is. And even many times in in great lyrics of great hymns. Whenever you have the systematic, verse-by-verse teaching of the Word of God, there will be a transformation that will occur in people. I've seen it a thousand times. In Romans 12, too, it says that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The word transformed, metamorpho, oh, there's a metamorphosis. And because of the, of the grammar of that text, it's, it indicates that this metamorphosis that will occur will be the result of the renewing of the mind, and it won't be something that you're necessarily even choosing to do. The, the Word of God's going to make a transformation in you. That's the idea. Parents, if I can digress for a second, if you want your children to grow spiritually, just unleash the Word of God on them. 
day in and day out. You live it, you teach it, you speak it. And you'll see the change by God's grace. That is His promise. The exposure to the truth. And it's tragic in our culture, isn't it? When you you think about it, because of of, of television and even our educational system um, and, and the dumbing down in the church, as I call it, many prefer sound bites over sound doctrine. They, they, they just can't think past a bumper sticker. And, of course, you've got to have short sermons because everybody's got spiritual ADHD, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. You know, after about ten minutes of thinking, boy, what are we going to eat? When's he going to be done here? You know, you start looking back there at the clock to see if it's still working. Well, if I can humbly say this, if that's you, you're probably still in that dependent child realm. And it's not to say that all of them are there, but certainly because there will be some children that want to grow. And certainly the, the analogy breaks down here because you're going to see that, that when somebody gets serious about spiritual growth, God begins to grow them and they will begin to have an insatiable appetite for the word. But it's so sad to see so many people that have been in churches all their lives and they've never grappled with theology. They've never grappled with great texts. They don't have a disciplined mind and and a disciplined study habits and and, and a secret devotion to God and, and a prayer life. It's just not there. Why? Because they're dependent children and they've just gotten stuck there. By the way, Christian publishing caters to these people. All you have to do is go into... Christian bookstores, and you'll see this book after book after book after book of this type of simplistic stuff. Contemporary Christian music, gospel music, a lot of that caters to this as well. And again, there's a place for some of that. But if that's your steady diet and that's all you like, there's something wrong with your spiritual development. So sad. So often the target audience of much of what goes on in these Christian industries is the naive and the ignorant, you know, give them milk. They can't handle meat. I remember there was an organization that asked me to contribute some devotional articles. And it was interesting in the, in the thing they gave to me. They said, now make sure you don't do anything expository. Because our target audience is an eighth grade education, mainly women. And I thought, how sad. Obviously, I didn't make the cut. I didn't even. I I talked with them and said, "My goodness, I mean, that's that's tragic, isn't it?" But that's the mindset. And as a result of that, people stay as children. And according to Ephesians four, they're going to be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And we see this in the new obsession here in in neo-evangelicalism, where we're always trying to reinvent the church. And the way you do that is you dumb down everything to the most basic, simplistic elements so that you can attract baby Christians. You cater to, to the naive and to the self-centered demands and childish whims of people that have never grown up spiritually, and you never help them grow into maturity. And they just stay there. Beloved, this is why we are so committed here to emphasizing just the expository preaching and teaching of the Word and everything that we do. In 1 Timothy 4.13, the Apostle Paul told Pastor Timothy, here's what he said, 
until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And by the way, that, that really meant the, the reading and the exposition of the text. That's what I'm doing here. I would read the text and I will explain to you what it means. But not only that, he said also to exhortation. That's application. All right. It's not just the reading of Scripture, the, the reading and, and the exposition, but the exhortation or the application. And he says, and to teaching. And that's the systematic instruction from Scripture of Bible doctrine. And he goes on to say, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. No, God's called you to do this and gifted you to do this. You do this. You don't have to go out there and find some new way to do church. In verse 15 of 1 Timothy 4, he says, take pains with these things. Wow. He even adds to that, be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. And, and you might say, well, well why? And he goes on, and we see it in other passages, again, so that you won't be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now, that's what happens with, with young children. We've got to get beyond that. You see, folks, I don't want to leave you vulnerable to the wolves that disguise themselves as shepherds, as pastors. My desire... And my calling is for you to grow to the next level. And that's number two, discerning young men. He's writing to dependent, immature, spiritual children because they know the father. That's their defining characteristic. But notice in the middle of verse 13, he says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He says it also in verse 14, in the middle there, he says, I, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now, folks, here we have a radically different analogy as well as the, the defining characteristics. Now, think of this. The key difference here is a, a child is ignorant and weak, wholly dependent upon his father. But a young man will be wise and strong, willing to fight for his father. In fact, as we read in Proverbs 20 and verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength. The Old Testament, the Hebrew word for young men really signified choice men, men that were fit for military service. So here in verses 13 and 14, young men refers to those who are youthful, but also strong. The idea of maturity here. And two times we see that they are overcomers comes from the word Nikeo. We get the word Nike from that. It means to be victorious. It means to be the conqueror. And because of the grammar here in this text, it indicates that the present that, that, that the, the overcoming or the present characteristic of these people is a is a consequence, if I if I can put it that way, of a past event. In other words, they are overcome because of their salvation and what happens at salvation. We're filled with the spirit of God. We're given a new heart and a mind and a song and all those wonderful things. We are now able to understand the word of God. We're able to live it out. And therefore, we're able to be developed into spiritual overcomers, to be developed to maturity. And therefore, we will be able to overcome, as he says here, the evil one. 
If I can continue the analogy here, and by the way, don't get hung up on young men. I mean, this refers to women as well, but but the analogy here is with a young man to get the idea of a strong immaturity and so forth. I'd like to think of it this way. The spiritual young men are like those who have spent many years in the weight room of Bible study. They have developed spiritual muscles. They have been... Years in training in the fields of discipleship. And now they're fit to go into the battle for the truth. Notice it says here they are strong. Why? Because the word of God abides in them. And they have overcome the evil one. Now think about this. How, how is that so? Well, who's the evil one? Well, that's Satan. Well, what does Satan and his minions do? They disguise themselves as angels of light. Satan is the father of lies. He is the, the master of deception. He is the one that instigates false doctrine and all those that teach it. He empowers false teachers with ingenious deceptions and clever counterfeits. Now catch this. Unlike dependent children, these are discerning young men who know sound doctrine. Because it says here in the text that the word of God abides in them. Now, this describes Christians who can and will heed the warnings, for example, of Ephesians 6.10. Verse 10, it says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Later on in verse 13, it says, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. By the way, if you want to understand spiritual warfare, it's two things. Resist and stand firm. Resist and stand firm. Don't get into all this mystical stuff. It's real simple. You resist and you stand firm. How do you do that? You know the scripture and you live it. It's not rocket science here, but it does require commitment, disciplined, hard work. So the strong young men of 1 John depicts spiritual warriors who understand the, the strategies of the enemy. And because of disciplined study and determined obedience, they have developed spiritual muscle. They're like a well-conditioned athlete, like a highly trained soldier. They will be, if I can add other terms to help you see this, they will be strong and courageous. They will be confrontive. They won't cower by threats of false teachers, nor will they carelessly walk through the minefields of temptation. They will be like those great Reformation preachers I talked about before. You remember the great preachers of Scotland, for example, that were called warrior preachers. They would see error and that would call for a counterattack. Every time a heretic would would stick his head up, that would incite them to battle. Cause them to draw the sword. You know, I've seen this a lot and over the years in teaching, especially in college and in seminary. I see this in our church. We see this, for example, in many of our men at SIT and other places. Um, men and women who see error, they can spot it, they're discerning, and they'll go after it. I don't care if it's a cult or some phony teacher, whatever it is, some superficial new bestseller, whatever it is, wherever the evil one seeks to deceive and destroy, they see it and they go after it. They can attack it, attack it with victorious, overwhelming strength. They're overcomers. Why? Because they can wield the sword, which is the spirit of God. These are the ones, by the way, who 
would be so familiar with truth that they could write out a doctrinal statement. They would be able to see a doctrinal statement and read another doctrinal statement and point out things that might be errant in that position. These would be the type of people that could look at the Word of God and basically explain, for the most part, all of it, at least within reason. These are going to be people that never get enough of the Word of God. They will have an insatiable appetite for it. And for this reason, they will be able to prevail over the enemy. They will be able to overcome. Now, you'll never see these type of Christians getting sucked into some cult. They're not going to get sucked into some false teacher. They're not going to be consistently making bad choices in their life. I had a man the other day who described a very difficult situation in his life where he became filled with despair. He became filled with confusion. He even became suicidal. And then all of a sudden he said, but oh, I've got to tell you, I, I was delivered from all of that. And he started describing some deliverance experience, some mystical thing. And as I was listening to it, I, I thought in my mind, there we go again, another baby Christian seduced by someone who knew error better than he knew truth. He couldn't overcome it. We see many examples of this discerning strength in the word of God. We see, for example, in the second Corinthians chapter 10 in verse verses three through six. There, the Apostle Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, though we have human limitations, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And of course, as we study the word of God, we know that the, that the weaponry that we have, the divine weaponry we have, will, will be the word of God and prayer. And what he's saying is we cannot fight the ingenious deceptions of Satan with mere human intellect. We have to have the word of God. You've got to know it. And he says that we are destroying fortresses, which is a term for strongholds or prisons. The idea here being bastions of, of, of errant, deceptive philosophies, fortresses that, that seem impenetrable. And in verse 5, he says we are destroying speculations, literally false ideologies, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, folks, please understand, a spiritual babe in Christ cannot do this. And again, that's okay for a new Christian. But it's only the wise and the strong that can do this. Why? Because the Word of God abides in them, don't you see? Only those who have, as Paul said to Timothy, disciplined themselves for the sake of godliness can be like the young men. And again, it's so sad to me. To see Christians who truly love the Lord, who have lived years in spiritual ignorance, and after a while they get so ignorant they don't even know they're ignorant. That's the heartbreak of all of it. And then when you try to gently correct them or, or explain something to them or even challenge them, they're, they're like, you know, my, my four-year-old granddaughter who, you, you know, will... You, or, or any child, I don't want to pick on just one, but any child, you, you try to say, no, no, don't, th this is wrong, it needs to be done this, no, 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 you know, and they get all upset. You knew, all of you with kids, you know what that's like. It's a tragic thing. You know, frankly, I get, I get angry after a while when, when I see my brothers and sisters in Christ trapped in churches that unwittingly leave people in spiritual infancy. 
and, and never try to stretch them to grow up. It's no wonder there are so many Christians today that are enamored with with sensational and 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 superficial attractions and all of this best-selling junk that's out there that, that's foisted upon them. People that are that are robbed of, of the intimate and rich joys that come from knowing sound doctrine. People that have been bamboozled by cons and by by counterfeits. People that have been defrauded by uh, of the inexpressible riches of 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 the Word of God and all of the power that comes out of that. The way you can use it in your life. It's just a heartbreak to see that. People that never get a firm grasp upon His glorious revelation. I think one of the reasons I get so passionate about it is because I have to deal with so many people whose lives are utter shambles and yet they've been Christians for years. And you think, how could you have been so stupid? How could you have been so ignorant? How can you possibly be that deceived? And it's because for years they have lived in a situation where they're kept in spiritual infancy. And they've never become young men, as the analogy would say. But this is not going to happen to those who are strong, as it says, and the Word of God abides in you, because you have overcome the evil one. So he writes to dependent children, discerning young men, and finally to devoted fathers. Verses 13 and 14. It's interesting. He says two times here, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. The verb here to know in the perfect tense in the original language indicates the continuous results of one's knowledge about something. And here it's the continuing results about the spiritual realities of Scripture, the continuing results of knowing especially the one who, your, your father, who has been from the beginning. And this will be, of course, the most mature of the three, because this person now has an intimate knowledge of what is true about the triune God, resulting in their ongoing devotion to him. If I can put it this way, I I believe what is being said here is that that biblically fathers are to be the spiritual leaders of the family. We know that biblically. They're to be even the leaders within the church. And when you get around these kind of people, it's something that goes way beyond just an intellectual understanding of, shall we say, systematic theology or doctrine or or anything along that line. It's, It's beyond that. You know, many people can speak eloquently about theology, about doctrine. Many people can speak about God in a respectful tone. And they may even be able to describe his attributes and speak about the great truths of Scripture with precision from the Word of God. But dear friends, only a spiritual father is one who really knows him, who is from the beginning, and therefore can speak about him with an intimate communion. You see, only a spiritual father can know, as the Bible says, the ancient of days. One who, a person who so thoroughly understands what God has done for them and who he is, that they can describe him in terms of inspiring familiarity. Because only wise old fathers, in the analogy, have walked with God for years 
and have proven him over and over again. You see, again, this is way beyond just the strength of young men. This, is, this far exceeds the power of discernment that comes from, from knowing sound doctrine, as important that that is, that is. I'm not trying to mitigate that at all. But folks, this is, describes the man or the woman who has seen God prove Himself powerful on their behalf over and over again. These are those who have a secret devotion to God. And they've seen that He has, he has never failed them. And their devotion has not waned. These are people that have spent years in the presence of God, pleading for strength, pleading for mercy and wisdom. And they've seen God answer prayer over and over and over again. These are those that have spent many, many days, if not weeks, on their face before God, crying out before the lover of their soul for strength and for understanding. Those who have wept with joy as well as have wept with sorrow. And they're able to still say, He has never left me. He has never forsaken me. And like all old men, these are the ones that love to speak about all that has happened in their life and in the past. And here, a reference to just all of God's unceasing love and faithfulness. The prophets spoke much of ancient things, rehearsing the history of what God has done, His faithfulnesses and His promises to them. Because of time, I won't get into all of it, but I think of Deuteronomy 6 where fathers were instructed to teach diligently their children the commandments of the Lord and to remember when the Lord brought them into the land and all of those things. And remember how God warned them and said, I want you to watch yourself lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and so on. And he had instructed them how to keep the commandments and so on. And then eventually he says, and when your sons ask you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord command you, commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, here's a spiritual father. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt. Pharaoh and all his household, and he brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. And on and on it goes. A passionate description of that which they have experienced firsthand. Way beyond just the intellectual understanding but rather the experiential reality of having walked with the living God, the one who has been from the beginning. These are fathers who know and love the truth and love to speak about it. Is that the way you are in your family? I think of another patriarch, Moses. Remember towards the end of his life in Deuteronomy 32, we read what was called the Song of Moses. And in the Song of Moses, he rehearsed in great detail the historical experiences of Israel and the faithfulness of the one with whom he had walked for so many years, the one whom he knew so closely, the one who has, as First John would say, been from the beginning. There's a spiritual father. I think of Ezra and Nehemiah 8. Remember the scribe who took the book of the law out after the people came back and were beginning to be restored back into their land. He took the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel, the Word of God says, and 
In Nehemiah 8, verse 8, it says, He read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the Sith so that they understood the reading. That's expository preaching. That's what he did. And it's interesting in that text, it says that they listened to him from early morning until midday. And in chapter 9, we read how that various Levites then recited the history of Israel. And you can read this, and, and, and there they, they emphasize the great themes of, of promises and judgment and the faithfulness of God, celebrating the one they knew, the one who has been from the beginning. And I think of Peter knowing that he was about to be crucified because the Lord had promised him that, how he was moved to remind the people Again, of the one that he knew so intimately. In 2 Peter 1.12, here's what he said. I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. Even though you already know them. And have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. Beloved, please hear this. Spiritual fathers are those who are so consumed with the joy of the Lord that they cannot stop speaking of Him. These are the ones who from the very core of their being can sing, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000 is in my blessed Lord I see. These are the ones who do not speak of Him just as a theological reality but as a best friend or as a beloved spouse. These are the ones that truly enjoy God because they absolutely know Him. They know Him so intimately, they've proved Him over and over again. These would be like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who said in Lamentations 3.20, Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. You see, friends, it's, it's out of the wellspring of great theological understanding that the waters of adoration flow. When one's faith becomes a legacy. When knowledge yields the fruit of secret devotion and rich communion that leaves one utterly lost in the wonder of his person. This is as the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians 3. Remember when he said that he counted everything in life to be just mere rubbish. And all that mattered to him was to know him. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So friends, I ask you, is this the passion of your heart? Where are you? Are you content to remain where you're at? And if you're in spiritual infancy, don't be content there. And by God's grace, we will all cry with one another, that we want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may know Him, exalt Him, and enjoy Him more fully. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for these truths. Apply them to our hearts for our good and for your glory. I pray in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.